Would you please uh, take your Bible and open with me to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. When uh, my family and I moved away for four months and uh, I was trained how to plant a church, one of our instructors in our training center was uh, kind of a part coach, part therapist, um, because he kind of had to be with a bunch of church planters. And, um, but he was that because he knew the ups and the downs of church planting. He knew that uh, there were times of discouragement along the way that could come at any moment because of unexpected news. But then he also knew how quickly that could flip and that we could be encouraged just a short time later by something that would appear to be so small that prior to being a church planter, you probably wouldn't have thought twice about being so encouraged by something like that. But he had been around this block enough times before with enough church planters before us, um, and that he was very good at helping to manage our expectations along the way. And he had one phrase in particular that he would repeat over and over and over again, particularly when he sensed that we were somewhat discouraged, we were a little bit down, we didn't know what to do, and he was like a father figure to many of us, and when he sensed those times of discouragement coming, he would look at us, and in a very gentle, very calm way, he would simply say to us, your best days are ahead. Your best days are ahead, and, and he would say that many times through the course of our time with him. Now, the thing is, you could take that phrase and you could understand it to mean a number of different things. He could come to you and say, oh, well, your best days are ahead, meaning don't worry about it because it is so bad right now that it can only get better from here, and that would be of no help to anybody. Or he could come to you and say, well, your best days are ahead, meaning that if you just believe enough and if you have enough faith, then eventually things have to turn around for you and it can only get better, and that would be equally unhelpful. But we all knew him well enough to know what he meant when he was saying, your best days are ahead. When he said, your best days are ahead, he meant that this life is temporary and it is passing and right now it feels hard and it feels heavy. But you have a God who loves you. You have a Savior who died for you and you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you and one day you will be in the presence of God forever. So when you take the discouragement and the despair and the circumstances that you're going through right now and you put it into the perspective of that, you begin to realize very quickly that yes, in fact, your best days actually are ahead. And in some sense, that's what the book of Ruth is about. It's a story that begins with tragedy and it ends in triumph. The book of Ruth begins as a story of a family who is desperate and they are trying to make ends meet. The book of Ruth is a story of a woman who has experienced great uncertainty in her life and deep suffering that has ultimately made her extremely bitter. It's a story about two daughters-in-law who, in the midst of their own suffering, are faced with life-changing decisions and they choose to go different ways. It's a story about a man who steps in and does everything within his power to redeem a situation that has gone so very bad. And in the end, really, the story of Ruth is a wonderful story of redemption. Because the book of Ruth is not just the story of Ruth's redemption, it's the story of our redemption too. And it's not just the story of Ruth's redeemer, 
because it's the story of our Redeemer, too. And so over the next few minutes, I want to take you through this story of Ruth in this Old Testament book, and I want to show you four realities of the Redeemer. So four realities of the Redeemer, and then out of that flow three responses from the redeemed. So four realities from, of the Redeemer, four realities of who the Redeemer is and what the Redeemer has done. And then from that flow three responses from those of us who have been redeemed. This man, Boaz, that we're going to meet here in a few minutes, serves as a Redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, and he teaches us some important realities about who the Redeemer is for us. So let's begin reading. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, just by way of context here, the story of Ruth is happening during the time of the Old Testament judges in Israel. And over the last couple of weeks in our series, we have been in the Old Testament book of Judges, and we have seen how dark and evil that particular time was. In fact, the four centuries that span the book of Judges are summed up by the very last sentence in that Old Testament book, Judges 21, verse 25, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everyone is going their own way, they're doing their own thing, and it's a very dark and spiritually destitute time within the life of the nation of Israel. But in the midst of that darkness shines one very bright light, and that's where the story of Ruth comes in. So there's a man named Elimelech, and he is married to a woman named Naomi, and they have two boys whose names are Malon and Kilion. Interestingly, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. And they live in Bethlehem. They're about to leave Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, because there's a famine in Israel. They're about to leave Bethlehem. So get this now, follow this. There is no bread in the house of bread. And my God is king, doesn't quite trust in his God, the king, enough to stay where he is and wait for God to provide. So he goes into the enemy territory of Moab because there appears to be food there, and so he takes care of his family. So he packs up his wife and his kids, and they move into Moab. His two boys grow up, and they marry Moabite women. Malon marries a girl named Ruth, and Kilion marries a girl named Orpah. But while they are there in Moab, Elimelech dies, and Naomi becomes a widow. And then sometime later, Malon and Kilion, the two boys, they die as well, and Ruth and Orpah are now widows as well. So Naomi has lost her husband. She has now lost both of her sons during the 10 years that they have lived in Moab. And through all of this, she sees the hand of God directing her circumstances, and yet at the very same time, she still becomes an intensely bitter woman. Now, somewhere along the way, these three ladies, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they discover that there's food again in Israel. So notice chapter 1 and verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard 
in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And this right here is Ruth's conversion. So Ruth and Orpah, the daughters-in-law, are leaving their home country in Moab to go back with Naomi into Israel. And Naomi says to them, notice again, the start of verse 9. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. That word rest in verse 9 means to have safe shelter. So the position of unmarried women in this Old Testament culture was very unstable at best because the one place that they found safety and security was within the house of their husband. So that's why Naomi encourages them to stay in Moab and get remarried because if they return to Israel with Naomi, it looks like there is no future for them, nor is there any guarantee at all for their safety. So when these ladies are faced with this ultimate decision, Orpah decides that she is staying in Moab. And so she gives Naomi a hug and a kiss and they cry and she turns around and she walks away right back into the heart of Moab. But verse 14 says that Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to Naomi. And then notice again what she says in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the language of the covenant. In other words, this is how the people of God spoke of what it meant for them to be in a relationship with God. So Ruth now is looking at Naomi and she is saying to her, I am not the same person that I used to be. I'm different now. Like this God that you have given your life to is now my God as well. And I'm not going back to my old life in Moab. I'm staying here with you because your God is my God. No doubt, over the past 10 years that they had spent together, Naomi's words and her life had shown to Ruth what a true commitment to God looked like. And it's likely that Naomi had not only evangelized Ruth, but now following her conversion, she would disciple Ruth. 
And just, just consider this. Just think for a minute about what's happening here in this moment for Ruth. Ruth is faced with a life-changing decision in this moment. And she counts the cost. She knew that she would have to give up the only life that she had ever known to that point. And not only that, but she was willing even to embrace the prospect of suffering. Not just because of her commitment to Naomi, but more so because of her commitment to Naomi's God, who just a few moments before had now also become her God. So Orpah has turned around and she has gone back into her homeland. And now Naomi and Ruth carry on back into Bethlehem. So notice chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, you do not have to be a super intelligent Bible scholar to understand that Naomi right now is in great pain. She is suffering deeply. On the one hand, she is lost in the darkness of her own adversity. And yet, on the other hand, she realizes that God is still in control, even in the midst of her adversity. Which, as a brief side note, I think serves to teach us a really important lesson. Everything in our life is understood rightly only when it is understood in relation to God. Everything in our life is understood rightly only when it is understood in relation to God. Now, there is no denying here that Naomi's pain is real. There's a lot of us in this room right now who could stand up and tell similar stories of loved ones lost or health that is failing or difficulties that are demanding. And for as real as the pain was for Naomi and for as real as the pain is for many of us as well, we cannot and we will not rightly understand those situations within our lives unless we understand that God is orchestrating every part of those situations to bring about glory for him and good for us. Naomi and Ruth could not yet see the good that would come from this situation But they would eventually. In fact, they start to see hints of it at the beginning of chapter 2. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so here we have Boaz now entering into the picture. And there's a couple of really important details that we learn of Boaz here in verse 1. First of all, we learn that he is of the clan of Elimelech. So Elimelech, remember, is Naomi's now deceased husband. And in order for a person to come in and save Ruth and Naomi and redeem their situation, that particular person had to be from their family. It had to be a relative. So we learn here that Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech. He is a relative. But we also learn here that he is a worthy man. And that can mean one of at least a couple of different things. It can mean that he has a lot of resources. He has a lot of money. He is very wealthy, more than the average person of that day in that culture. 
but it could also mean that he is very well respected among the people of his community. For Boaz, in this particular case, it probably means both. So he is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Notice verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And so the love connection is made. That last phrase at the end of verse 5, when he says, whose young woman is this, that probably translates from the original language to something like, check her out. Like, way to go, God. And, and he was pretty excited at that moment. And, and that now brings us, actually, to the first reality of the Redeemer. The first reality of who the Redeemer is and what the Redeemer does. Number one, the Redeemer pursues the poor because of his kindness. The Redeemer pursues the poor because of his kindness. So things have become so bad for Ruth and Naomi that Ruth pleads with Naomi to let her go into the grain fields and get what she can. The thing was, there was an Old Testament law at the time that went all the way back to Leviticus chapter 23 that said that a farmer should not reap right up to the edges of his field, nor should he go in and pick up all of the leftovers that fell to the ground as his workers were reaping the harvest of the field. And the reason that they didn't do that, the reason that they left the edges of the field like they were, was for the people who were traveling through or the poor people in their community who could come and they could help themselves to those particular parts of the field and they would have food. And right now, Ruth fits into both of those categories. She has just arrived from a foreign country and she has nothing to eat. In verse 3, she just so happened to end up in the field of Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, you have to see this because this is one of the great things about Old Testament narrative stories like this. Like the author reminds us again, just in the span of three verses, that Boaz belongs to the clan of Elimelech. Like twice he tells us, and, and you can just feel like he's setting us up for the way that the story is going. You can just feel all of the pieces coming together in exactly the way that they need to come together. And so now Boaz pursues Ruth and realizes how poor that she is, which leads us then to the second reality of the Redeemer. Not only does the Redeemer pursue the poor because of his kindness, but the Redeemer protects the helpless because of his compassion. The Redeemer protects the helpless because of his compassion. Notice chapter 2 and verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz now not only pursues her, but now he is protecting her. Tells her to stay in the field where he knows that she's going to be safe and to stay close to the young women who are already working in that field. He's given orders to the men who work for him not to hurt her, not to harm her in any way. And, and then he says, by the way, when you're thirsty after working for such a long day, just feel free to help yourself to what everybody else is drinking. And so he's protecting her. He's taking care of her. But maybe the biggest problem of all is that Ruth was from Moab. 
fact, that's a detail that the author repeats a number of times all the way through the story, and it's a really important detail because Moab was the sworn enemy of Israel. The Moabites as a people began all the way back in the book of Genesis because of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. Not a great way to begin a nation of people. You skip ahead to the Old Testament book of Numbers, and Numbers chapter 25 tells the story of a huge group of Moabite women who come and seduce a huge group of Israelite men, and they end up marrying one another, and these Israelite men then are seduced into worshiping the false gods of these Moabite women. And as a result, the judgment of God comes down on those Israelite men and 24,000 Israelite men die because they were seduced into worshiping the false gods of the Moabite women whom they were not supposed to marry. Like every guy in Israel at this point knows you don't go after a Moabite woman. But from the beginning of this story, we see that Elimelech took his family right into Moab and his two sons grow up and they marry Moabite women. And now one of them, one of those Moabite women, has come back into Israel, and they know that Ruth is a Moabite, and they know that the Moabites are the enemy, and they know that Ruth is helpless. And so now, Boaz steps in, and not only is he pursuing Ruth, but he is also protecting Ruth because of his compassion toward her. And that compassion leads then to this exchange in verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Boaz is basically giving everything to Ruth here. And, and Ruth is looking back at Boaz right now. And she is saying, I am lower on the ladder than all of your servants. And I am lower on the ladder than everyone in your household. And yet, you are showing unbelievable kindness to me. You are showing favor to me that I do not deserve. Which leads us then to the third reality of the Redeemer. The Redeemer provides for the needy because of his abundance. The Redeemer provides for the needy because of his abundance, because of his generosity. Look at what happens next. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. In other words, it's like she's stuffing her pockets before she leaves. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also put out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So again, Boaz is just giving everything to her. He's, he's looking at her and he's saying, listen, you go and work for it, and whatever you can get, it's all yours. You take it, enjoy it, be blessed by it. He's giving her everything out of his generosity, and when the, the evening is over, Ruth has stuffed her pockets, she's got leftovers from supper, she's going to take it home to Naomi, they're going to enjoy some leftovers together, and then she goes out in the fields and she works, and before she goes home, she collects an ephah of barley. Now, the average amount that a person would take 
from one single day's work was about one to two pounds of barley. And here, some scholars think that Ruth is walking away with about 30 pounds of barley. Like, just think about that. The average for a person walking into a field in a day's work is one to two pounds. Ruth now is taking 30 pounds. Some scholars even estimate it could be upwards of 50 pounds that Ruth is taking home, and Boaz just gives it to her out of his abundance. He gives it to her out of his generosity. Notice verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. I don't know what... um, what mental picture you have of Ruth when you read this story in the Old Testament. For me, up until this point, like up until this week, I had this mental picture of Ruth as this like small, feminine, petite woman who was blessed by God in amazing ways, did amazing things. But then I read the start of verse 18, and I'm like almost convinced that she was the first ancient female bodybuilder because like she's got 50 pounds of barley and she is just hoofing it home all by herself. Like, that is an accomplishment. Anyway. (laughs) Verse 18. Moving on. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So now she's emptying her pockets. And verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked Like, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Like, again, this is one of those places where where the author just pulls on this thread of suspense through this narrative. So just try and picture right now what's happening as Ruth unpacks the details of her day and she starts to tell Naomi everything that has happened. Because at this point, we know that Boaz is doing this. Like at this point, we know who Boaz is. We know what Boaz has done and we know why Boaz is doing it. But at this point, Naomi does not yet know that it was Boaz who did this. And Ruth does not yet know why it matters so much that Boaz is the one who has been doing all this. And so the author just makes this moment last as long as possible. And Ruth says, the man's name with whom I worked today is... Dun, dun, dun. Boaz. And, and you look at this, and Naomi now starts to connect the dots, and all of a sudden, Naomi, this woman who at the very beginning of this story was bitter, now she has totally turned the corner, and she is back in the game. Notice verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And this now is turning the whole story in a brand new direction, which leads us to the fourth reality of a redeemer. Not only does the redeemer pursue the poor because of his kindness, not only does he protect the helpless because of his compassion and provide for the needy because of his abundance, but number four, the redeemer saves his people because of his love. The redeemer saves his people because of his love. Now, You need to see that at this point, again, Naomi has completely turned the corner and she is now plotting a way. She is planning a way to get the help that they need from the only one who is able to give it to them. And so she turns, this is great, she turns to Ruth at the start of chapter three and verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, 
should I not seek rest for you? Now remember, that word rest means a safe shelter, and that safe shelter could only come from a husband who could protect her. And so Naomi comes to Ruth and says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Verse 2, is not, who's that guy? Who's that guy you're with? Isn't, oh yeah, Boaz. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were just in the field the other day? See, he, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, we read this and we look at verse 2. Is not Boaz a relative? And, and we think to ourselves, you're a relative. Like, Naomi's gone from like, bitter mother-in-law to matchmaker mother-in-law and now she is setting Ruth up with a relative like that is not cool but that's the way the Bible said that it needed to be your redeemer who rescues you needs to be related to you and so Naomi puts together this plan that apparently was the custom of the day both Ruth and uh, Boaz are described throughout this book as worthy people and then Ruth sets out to do exactly what Naomi told her to do look at verse 6 Chapter 3, verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And here it is, Ruth proposes to Boaz. Like, she proposes to him. Like, how romantic is this, right? Like, this guy has just finished a huge meal, and he goes to bed, he just wants to rest. And in the middle of the night, he's woken up by this woman who's sitting at the end of his bed just staring at him. Like... (laughs) Like, guys, ladies, how many of you remember that one glorious moment all those years ago when everything was perfect and just the way that it should be and you got down on one knee and you looked the love of your life into their eyes and you said to them, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. No? Different time, different custom. All God's people said, amen, amen. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So we read this, and all of a sudden, there seems to be a big problem. Because we're reading this story from the very beginning, and we are cheering for Boaz. Right? Like he's one of the good guys. We want him to be the one who's going to swoop in and redeem Ruth and Naomi. And he's going to turn this tragedy into triumph. And, and now he comes to Ruth and he says, I will do everything that I possibly can to make this happen. But it turns out that there is another redeemer that is even closer to you than I am. In other words, he is saying this other guy has the first shot at redeeming you. 
See, in order for a man to redeem anyone, he had to have at least three things in place. First, he had to have the right to redeem. And what gave him the right was that he had to be the closest living relative. So he had to have the right to redeem, but he also had to have the power to redeem. That is that he had to have the resources, he had to have the money, he had to have the ability to pay the debts of those whom he was rescuing. And then third, he had to have the will to redeem. In other words, he had to want to do it. So the Redeemer had to have the right, the power, and the will to redeem. All three of those things had to be in place in order for the Redeemer to be the Redeemer. And so at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 4, rather, Boaz searches out this other man who could redeem Ruth and Naomi, and he lays out the situation before this guy, and this guy says, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I'll redeem this situation. And we read the start of chapter 4, and we're like, no! Right? Because we want Boaz. Like, we want Boaz to step in and save Ruth and Naomi. And so we're reading this and we're thinking to ourselves, come on, Boaz, you got to step in. you got to do something. And so then Boaz throws this guy a curveball. Look at chapter 4 and verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So this guy hears that Ruth comes with a deal, and he says, no, I can't do that. And he says no, primarily because Ruth is a Moabite. Remember, she's a Moabite from the people who are the sworn enemies of Israel. By her very nature, she was excluded from the fellowship of God and the blessings of the covenant that God would give to his people. And so this guy says, you know what? On second thought, why don't you go ahead and you do it and you take all of the rights of redemption for yourself. And in that one plot twist at the very last minute, when it looks like everything was lost, Boaz sweeps in and he redeems Ruth and Naomi. And what for so long had been an unexplainable tragedy has in a single moment turned into unbelievable triumph. Why? Because the Redeemer has saved his people because he loves them. But that's not all. Look at how this ends. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And here it all comes together. They are all celebrating because God has given them a redeemer, and that redeemer has brought them great joy. In fact, there is so much joy that Naomi takes this child and cares for him, and all of the women who knew of Naomi's grief at the very beginning of the story now celebrate with her and say, a son has been born to Naomi. And we're like, wait a minute. Like, Naomi didn't give birth to the boy. Ruth did. So why are they saying a son has been born to Naomi? 
They're saying that because all the way back in chapter one and verse 21, Naomi was convinced that the Lord had brought her back to Bethlehem empty-handed and it caused her great bitterness. But now, here she is on the other end of this story and God has filled her back up. And he has replaced her deep bitterness with abounding joy and the one thing that has changed everything was the Redeemer. Ruth gives birth to a boy named Obed. Obed would one day be the father of Jesse. Jesse would one day be the father of David. And from the line of David would come the one true and ultimate redeemer in Jesus Christ. Now, follow me here, okay? Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz is a type of Christ. In other words, Boaz is an example to us of something that Christ is for us. Boaz is an example to us of something that Christ is for us. So Boaz looks upon this Gentile named Ruth and shows her generous favor that she has done nothing to deserve. And then in marriage, he takes her in as his own and shows her great love. And in a much greater way, Jesus Christ has looked upon us and he has not simply redeemed us to meet an earthly requirement like that of Elimelech, but he has made us his bride so that we can both now and forever share with Jesus Christ in his life, in his home, in his wealth, and in his joy. Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer because in a much greater way than Boaz, Jesus has the right to redeem us. He is our relative, you could say, in that he is fully human. In one sense, Jesus lived as we did. But in another sense, he lived the life that we could never live. And while he has the right to redeem us, he also has the power to redeem us. Because even while he is fully human, he is also fully divine. He is God. He is without sin. And in his death and resurrection, he proved once and for all that he has power over sin and death forever. So Jesus has the right to redeem us. He has the power to redeem us. But what makes Jesus different from so many of these other human redeemers is that Jesus has the will to redeem us. He wanted to redeem us because he voluntarily left his throne of glory in heaven and came to earth to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death and to conquer a powerful enemy that we could never conquer so that all of us in our poor and helpless and needy and lost condition could be pursued and protected and provided for and saved by the one true redeemer. And so those four realities must lead then to these three responses of the redeemed. So three responses that we learn here from the story of Ruth. Number one, see his sovereignty in every season. See his sovereignty in every season. This entire story and our entire lives are laced with the sovereignty of God. Even in the midst of what looks like unspeakable tragedy at the beginning of this book, Naomi knows that God is in control of everything. Chapter 1, verse 8. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. Chapter 1, verse 13. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Chapter 1, verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Naomi sees the hand of God within her adversity. She sees that God is sovereign over her suffering. But it doesn't end there. Look at the rest of the story. We've just tracked through everything that has happened in this story. Is it any accident that God just so happened to bring Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest when they needed food? And is it any accident that God just so happened to lead Ruth to the field belonging to the man with whom she worked, whose name was, dun-dun-dun, Boaz, right? And is it any accident that Boaz just so happens to be a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech? And is it any accident that Boaz just so happens to be one of their redeemers? And is it any accident that the other redeemer who could have turned the story in a completely different direction just so happens to say no at the last minute so that Boaz can rightfully step in and redeem Ruth and Naomi? And is it any accident that Ruth, after 10 years of not being able to have children with her first husband, would give birth to Obed, and centuries later, this Gentile woman from Moab, named Ruth, from Moab, the enemy of Israel, just so happens to end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer? Are these any accidents? No, these are not accidents. None of this is just so happened. All of this is just so God. Like, let this be a lesson to us. At the beginning of this story, Naomi had no way of knowing that even in her, even in her grief, God was writing a story that would bring about glory for him and good for her. And I hope on some level, that there is great encouragement among those of us gathered in this room right now, that no matter your suffering, no matter your pain, no matter your grief, no matter your despair that you may be going through right now, that God has written your story and he has written it in such a way that will bring about glory for him and good for you. Like Naomi had no way of knowing how it would end when she was at the very beginning. Ruth had no way of knowing how it would end when she was at the very beginning. And we have no way of knowing how it is going to come together when we are right in the middle of it. We have no way of knowing how the death of a loved one or the pain of a miscarriage or the disease of a family member or the deformity of a child, or the fear of a future. We have no way of knowing right now how it will all come together later, but what we do know is that God has written the story. And the chapter that you are in right now is most certainly preparing you for a chapter that has already been written by God, but is not yet known to you. Even though you don't quite know how this story will come together within your life, what you do know is that you have a great redeemer who has written the remainder of your story in a way that will ultimately bring about glory for him and good for you. And that's why we can sit here tonight with God's word open in front of us, speaking truth into the circumstances that we are going through, and we can say with absolute confidence that yes, my best days are still ahead. But again, it doesn't stop there. Because when you see his sovereignty in every season, you can then lose your life out of love for him. That's the second response of the redeemed. Lose your life out of love for him. Back to chapter one. 
Verse 16, Ruth has known Naomi for at least 10 years, and she has seen her faith in God up close. And here, these three women are Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah, and they are at a crossroads, two daughters-in-law who are faced with a life-changing decision. Orpah chooses to go back to her old life. And look again, chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I mean, just think about what's going through Ruth's mind right now at that moment, at that crossroads where she has to make a decision about what to do with the rest of her life. She sees her sister-in-law walking off into the sunset, walking straight back into the heart of Moab. Sees her sister-in-law walking back to a life that is comfortable, a life that is secure, a life that is safe, a life of worshiping false gods. And Ruth now looks at Naomi and she says, no, I am not going back to that because your God is my God. And I'm making the decision right now that I am turning away from Moab. I am turning away from that life and I am walking in the direction of my God. Just think for a minute about what Ruth is giving up by making that decision. She's choosing to leave her family and familiar surroundings behind her. She's choosing what looks to be, at this point, early in this story, she's choosing what looks to be a life as a widow who will never have children. She is choosing to go to an unknown land with new people, new customs, and a new language. And she is looking to Ruth, and she is saying that she is choosing to die in this place. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She is turning her back on Moab, never to go back there again. And over all of that, she is choosing God. This is the nature of true conversion. True conversion is not saying, I'll take a little bit of Israel and a little bit of Moab. True conversion is not saying, I'll take a little bit of the new, but I'll keep a little bit of the old. It's turning your back on the old and clinging to the new. Like that's what Ruth is doing with Naomi in that moment. She is turning her back on everything that Moab represents to her, everything that Moab has been to her. And chapter one says that she clings to Ruth, or to Naomi, rather. It's turning away from trusting yourself and trusting in the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is the true nature of conversion, that when we have truly encountered the living God and we realize who he is and what he has done for us, that we willingly lay down our life, our entire life before him. So let me ask you, have you turned your back on the false gods of your former life? Have you died to the old way of life, never to return to it again? Have you said, God, here's my life. I will do what you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go. I will walk away from safety. I will walk away from security. I will walk away from comfort to go to the places that you are calling me to go. And I will risk it all because following you is so much better than anything that this life could ever offer to me. Have you done that? If you're here tonight and You have never done that, and you do not have that relationship with God. We invite you.
to turn away from your sin and to turn away from yourself and trust in Jesus Christ who gave his life to redeem you from all of that. But it's not just Ruth. Boaz does the same thing. Look at chapter two and verse five. And Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? That's actually a really important question within this story because Boaz is coming and saying, who does she belong to? Like, how can I help her? And in that moment, Boaz is standing there and culture doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. Reputation doesn't matter. The only thing that matters to him in that moment is how can I help her? How can I be compassionate to her? And it begs us to ask the question of ourselves, who are the people around us to us? Who are the poor and the destitute to us? Who are the homeless to us? Who are the ones reeling from divorce to us? Who are the ones who are struggling with marriage to us? Who are the ones who are struggling financially to us? Who are the ones who have been caught up in questionable relationships to us? Like, do we look at them and, and they are like projects to be completed? Problems to be solved? Or are they people who need to be loved with the love of Christ? See, when you see his sovereignty over every season of your life, then you can lose your life out of your love for him. You can go to the places where he leads you and you can embrace the plans to which he has called you. You can love the people to whom he sends you and you can even welcome the suffering which he has sovereignly planned for you. When you see his sovereignty over every season, then you can lose your life out of love for him, and only then can you find real rest in your Redeemer. That's response number three. Find real rest in your Redeemer. From the very beginning, Naomi's desire was for her daughters-in-law to find rest. Remember, to find safe shelter under the protection of one who could care for them. And now, at the end of this story, Boaz, their Redeemer, has saved them, and there is great joy in the household of Ruth and Boaz. There is great joy in the heart of Naomi because they have found real rest in their lives. Notice here that Ruth enters the story of God, poor, friendless, and empty-handed. And then Boaz, the Redeemer, pursues her and showers her with favor. And from there, Ruth puts her hope in Boaz, and she ends up risking everything that she has and everything that she was on the kindness of Boaz. And the call is the same for us. We enter the story of God, poor, friendless, and empty-handed. And then our Redeemer pursues us, and he showers us with his favor. And the call for us is to risk everything on the kindness of our Redeemer. And why can we do that? We can do that because though we may die risking everything on his kindness, we know that our Redeemer lives. And he is good to us. And regardless of how hard it is now, we can know with absolute confidence that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, in our place and for our sins, our best days are truly ahead.